not know, I, a little while ago, started, well, a little while ago, 20 years it seems now, um, started to do a life ambition of learn to play the piano. And uh, I passed my grade six a few years ago and sort of not done so much recently. But one of the things I learned as I was beginning to kind of get used to the keys uh, with the teachers is that you sort of look at the music and it's a bit like when you start to read you kind of see just the letters. I mean, if you've had children, they just start to try and sound the little, the individual syllables and the phrases. Or you start to just put note by note by note. I mean, they are. It is music, note by note by note. But as I went a little bit further in my piano experience and learning to play the piano, the teacher kept saying, look, look at the phrasing. Look at not just the individual notes. Look at how it's put together because actually there are there are little phrases little uh, sections that if you can see that as a whole you begin to not just read the notes but understand a broader picture you understand the impact of what was being written does that make sense it's a bit like when you teach children to read that you you're not just picking out words you're seeing the sentence you're beginning to look for the structure and the way it's being formed uh, of, of the pauses the inflection to see a bigger picture so I want us to, to, to read uh, our scripture this morning with that in mind. Phil uh, preached uh, towards the end of chapter 3, and I just want to pick up at verse 320. We're going to particularly read through to uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 6. But I want us to have that in mind, because the way that we, we often read the Bible and the way it's set out with chapter and verses can make us focus just on the notes on the little sections and maybe not notice some of the whole phrasing. So Paul writes to this church he loves and is seeking to encourage them. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it is a work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in And sometimes when you are playing music, there's a little bit of a shock. Did you hear it? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his great power that is at work within us, to him be glory through the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's like, so be it. This is fantastic. All the problems solved. The God is ruling and reigning. He's on his throne. Hunky-dory, let's just celebrate. As a prisoner of the Lord then. I mean, having declared and celebrated and spoken of the greatness of past, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord then. I mean, what's that about? He's just declared the greatness of God beyond that we can, who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask. It's not just me or him. It's the whole combined church of what they are imagining God could do. That's kind of big, isn't it? 
But he says it's not the quick fix of solving the perceived or the obvious problem. As a prisoner of the Lord then. For him there's not a contradiction of declaring the greatness of God residing in a, in a prison. For him it's not a contradiction of faith. It's not a disjuncture. It's not a problem to hold the greatness of God with the challenges and the reality of living in faith in the here and now. He writes to the church to say that both are true. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Yes, he could have opened the gates of the prison. He'd done that for Paul. Escaped. Or the doors were flung open and they remained and sang hymns and the jailer was like about to kill himself. Read Acts. And he said, no, we're here still. God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. But in this context, he knew he was in the will and purposes of God as a prisoner of the Lord. It is right to ask and pray and intercede. And when we are praying for healing and changes in situations, and, and we recognize that, that our lives sometimes are groaning with creaking joints or malfunctioning bodies or, 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 or the injustices we see all around us. We see that and we perceive that and we cry out to God rightly, to him who is able to do him more than we can ask or imagine and still live in contentment in the here and now. It's not an either or choice, it's both with faith. See, Paul has built up at this point in his letter to the church. He's built up in chapters 1 to 3 the wonderful declaration of the gospel. So common in Paul's writing. The first part of the letter, often the bigger part, is about the goodness of God, of his favor, the gospel, what he has done in Jesus Christ. This is the heart and circumference of our church life, of our witnessing life. It's about Jesus and what he has done, sent by the loving Father and who has risen and is going to return and has sent the Holy Spirit. This is great stuff. Often it's called theology and we go, oh, it's heavy. But he wants us to get it. Because when we understand the moves and purposes and the way that God has worked and is working, that begins to help us redefine the very real circumstance of our life. To understand the narrative of our journey without thinking, well, God has forgotten me. And as such, the transition between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is like, a, it's a turning point. It's, a, it's like a pivot point, a fulcrum. Chapters 1 to 3, very much about God and his purposes, particularly about Jesus. Paul, in this letter especially, uses language that talks about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the, per, the one who is sent, the one who accomplishes all the Father's will and acts decisively still in the church in Ephesus and church in Chipping Camden in 21st century life. And in chapter 4, it switches from this is the goodness of God to now how does that work? How does that translate? What does it mean to get your hands dirty, to live this out? What does this mean for us to live believing, trusting, having encountered and known the goodness of God? And shifts in chapter 4, not only is what God has done now, the so what, the therefore. 
It talks, it also moves away from language about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, interestingly, to a predominance of the use of the title Lord for Jesus. I'll come back to that in a minute. But there's something about knowing the goodness of gospel, the goodness of Jesus, the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the rescuer, the one who loves us, being sent into this world for us. In the shift to now, the so what, to actually saying we live under the lordship of Jesus. The Savior and Lord, that twofold declaration of the believer, he is Savior and Lord, of living as followers under his direction, under his leadership and guardianship. And I love this. Translations would say, as a prisoner for the Lord then, there. In the NIV, as we're reading it, as it's a good version, not, not challenging, as a prisoner for the Lord then, uh, then it's that therefore, in light of, because of all this, now this, they are implicitly linked. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Other translations with this live a life would use the word walk. I live, I I urge you to walk, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He urges, he doesn't command, he doesn't stick beat. But he urges, come on, sisters and brothers, you can do this. In the light of all this goodness, I urge you, this is the best way. Come on, I urge you. It's like Paul on the side of the Tour de France, cheering on the cyclists up the, um, the big coals. I've forgotten the name of them. They're, they're, they're steep and difficult. I'm sorry, but he's urging them on. Keep going, keep going. I urge you. I urge you. Keep going. Live this way. And first of all, he reiterates, in the life of Jesus, it's not disconnected to who you now are. I am called by God. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I hope this doesn't come across as patronizing, but sometimes I like to do this in my own devotions. I take a phrase and speak it out. I am called by God. I encourage you to say it with me. I am called by God. I am called by God. It's worth reminding ourselves of this because we, we have many identities in life as, as a husband or father or, or a child or grandparent. It may be to do with your profession or career or title or role or status or vacation, dinner lady or nurse or dad or accountant or teacher. But Paul calls us back to that deep-rooted, established reality. A fundamental calling of every believer is, I am called by God. Calls to us. He's chosen us, says Ephesians 1. Right from the beginning, when things went sour in the Garden of Eden, God called out, Where are you? He calls us. He calls us into Him. He calls us into an identity, a life, a faithful allegiance to believe in Him, to know Him, and to follow Him. And as such, given that we have trusted what he has accomplished for us, in drawing us into Jesus, we are 
called. One commentator said this, it's by no means enough to have knowledge of the Christian faith. For Christianity consists rather of practice. Of course it's knowledge, but it's not just. It's not enough just to know about, but to receive the gift of God of Jesus Christ. To ask him to be Lord and Savior of our life. To ask him to come and indwell. And say, now I live for you. The call of God to each one of us to begin again. To start afresh. It's not enough to sit on the sideline. It's not enough to be in association with but to come and bow the knee before Jesus and say, you are the rescuer, my savior, my Lord. I bow the knee and confess you, trust you, promise now to live because of the greatness of the gospel and the generosity and favor of God for us. I'm sure there are people here who still need to make that choice. Paul would urge you to do so. I do too. It's not enough just to know about. For following Jesus consists rather in knowing and practice, faith and belief. He goes on, I'm, I, not only are we called, that we've just said that by I'm called by God to live, to walk. It's not just a choice that we make and then that's it. Deal done, book closed, ticket to heaven, ticket to ride. That Paul says this life, living, this live a life worthy of the calling in view of, or as the ESV and others' translations would translate this word, it's, it's actually a thing to keep stepping, to keep walking. One, one uh, preacher that I listened to talks about the Christian journey as right foot, left foot, right foot, Left foot, right foot, left foot. Walk, walk. Take the next step. Live the life. We are called by God into his ways. And, and goes on to describe some of that. Be completely humble and gentle. I mean, when I read this, uh, you know, Paul is setting, setting what it means clearly. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Wow. Wow. Just some reflections I came across as I was reading and preparing that you may have heard of Watchman Nee, one of the Chinese leaders of the church. In Mao Zedong's prison labor camp for the last 20 years of his life, he died in the 70s. And he was one of the pioneers of the underground church and prepared the ground so much for a great move of God. And, and apparently he wrote a simple little reflection about Ephesians. And he, he entitled it, Sit, Walk, Stand. Sit, Walk, Stand. And he, he, he draws and said, this is kind of one of the, the controlling things of, of Ephesians to help us as disciples. First he says, sit. And he draws that from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in, the he- in, in him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
He said, the reality for us is that we, we need to learn how to sit with Christ and rest. That he's done all for us. We can't add to or put more to or advance through our own effort in any way. God has done it. We are to sit. We are seated with Christ, not from anything we have done or achieved or merited or could ever do or earned enough, but because God has done it. And as such, our first response is to sit, to rest in the saving work of Jesus. This is grace. He wrote, most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit. But that's a reversal of the true order. Our natural reason says, if we do not walk, how do we ever reach the goal? What can we attain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we do not move? But Christianity is strange. If at the outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to obtain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. Thus Ephesians opens with the statement that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. And we are invited at the very outset to sit down and enjoy what God has done for us, not to set out to try and attain it for ourselves. Wow. Thank you. Telly's been at New Wine. There's audience feedback. (laughs) Thank you, Rupert. It's so important to know to sit, to rest, to trust, to accept, to celebrate, to give thanks. So much of the Christian faith is giving thanks because as we give thanks, we become aware of of again and again his goodness and grace for us. Sit. Walk. The Ephesians, as we read, we know I I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Ephesians in ESV, the English Standard Version, again, a great version. I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk means to conduct your life and everything about it in view of this. He says, Watchman Nee goes on to say that we can only start to walk when we have learnt to sit. The living the Christian gospel is only possible when we've responded to the gospel. Walking, living it is impossible if we've not learnt to sit. It's a little bit countercultural, but it's right that we hear it. You see, if we accept the gospel and Paul's teaching that in Jesus we have been crucified and raised and exalted to heaven to sit at God's right hand, that that is true, that first we sit, then walking like Jesus comes naturally. Walking with Jesus comes naturally. Live a life you've received, that the God has opened up the way. He is the gate. Jesus has accomplished this, that we enter in, we rest in him, and from that place of accepting the fullness of God's offer and life, we now walk with him. Not to enter in, but to journey on. 
If we're seated with Jesus in the holy, holy throne room in heaven, it makes no sense for us to carry on walking in filthy sin here on earth. Paul's a realist. It's not just enough to have right doctrine and to understand these things of the gospel and everything else will just flow naturally, just by chance. He says and writes chapters 4, 5, and 6, in light of this, I now need to urge you because our hearts don't always express everything that we have come to believe in our head. It takes a right foot a left foot, a right foot, a left foot, to walk with humility and gentleness and patience and love. And the more that we understand what he has accomplished, the more we live in him, the more that we let Jesus sink in, the more of the character of Jesus will spill out in us. Paul is so clear about it. The Spirit of God has been gifted to us to live in us. He fills us. He goes on in, it, in chapter 5 to says, Be filled with the Spirit. Filled to overflowing. Don't get drunk on wine because that leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. But equally in the same, in the same wonderful bit of the book, he says, uh, We are in Christ Jesus. Came across a wonderful way of describing it. I, I find it really helpful. So imagine um, there's a father and son or a mother and daughter or whatever, whatever way you want to, to have a parent and a child. And they're at the seashore and they've got a bucket because they're doing seashore like sandcastles. To describe this, this way of knowing that Jesus is in, in us and we're in him. And the, and the parent, the, the dad says to the child, do you see this bucket? And they're, they're playing and they're fetching some water to put into the, the moat that they've built. They're in the sea up to kind of waist depth and they, they pop the bucket in and, they put, and, and the dad says, as the bucket's in the water, my child, is the bucket in the sea or is the sea in the bucket? Is the bucket in the sea or is the sea in the bucket? And the smart ones amongst you say, well, both are true. Exactly. But my experience is that we have a preponderance, a, a, a basic kind of uh, response to think and to opt for Jesus is in me. The sea is in the bucket, which is true. But holding the other in tension with that makes us recognize that there is so much more of God that we don't just contain God, but that he contains us. He can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Such is his greatness, but he's in us. All that goodness somehow squished into little old us. But we're still in the sea. When it comes to walking this walk, right foot, left foot, it's not just from, from within our own strength, but from him who dwells in us. That he filled, We need to ask him to fill us and to, to be able to live his life, absolutely, but to recognize that we are in him. And as such, this living it out, this walk, stems entirely from him. 
You see, he goes on in these wonderful phrases. There's, there's so much here. Make, uh, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say keep the unity. Uh, he doesn't say make unity. He doesn't say come together as a church family and you've got to work really hard at, at getting on with each other. He says make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. There's a distinct difference. That in Christ we are unified already. And the challenge is not to break it. It's not that we start and we have to create it. That actually our default position is we are believers. The Holy Spirit comes in. We are baptized into one body. We are united with the Father, with one another. The default position is unity. Make every effort to keep that by walking left foot, right side, with, with humility and gentleness and kindness, patience. To maintain, to keep unity. If you're falling out with somebody, they may be being obnoxious to you, possibly. But it may actually be an attitude of your heart to correct too, first and foremost. We're told and encouraged so much about the power of loving community, whether it's in John's gospel, the world will know you're my disciples if what? They see how much you love one another. To make every effort to keep the bond of peace. And that's something to, to cherish. And, and it's a powerful statement in this age. Why do you hang out together? Why is this church able to contend together? Even when there's very different backgrounds and, uh, and perspectives. And, uh, and issues that could divide. And the world uh, just fragments and falls apart. Paul would say, make every effort to keep the, bond, the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And he draws us right back to Jesus. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He is our unity. He is our life. We are his. We all have one hope, one faith, granted uh, to us all by adoption by one father. We are all called by him. Filled with one spirit, all baptized in water into one body. I know Phil and I keep banging on about baptism. It matters to be baptized As a believer, one theologian who wasn't a Baptist wrote this. The baptized are brought into relationship with God and with each other in the same act. By virtue of sharing in communion with one father, mediated by the son and realized by the spirit. Those who are in Christ are in the church. Brought into relation to God and into community simultaneously. Into God and into community simultaneously. Jesus, as he broke bread, said, this is my body which is broken for you, for the many. We are called to worship one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I forgot to bring a a visual aid. I remembered it two minutes before the start of service. But you're creative people, you can imagine it. If I unfolded an ordnance survey map, and I said, you're here, 
and this is where we're going, we'd have to plan a route. And we could plan all sorts of routes to get from A to B. But the thing is, where we are now, where we start, isn't where we're called to end up. Walk the life worthy of the calling you've received. The left foot, the right foot, the taking the steps of faith of discipleship under the lordship of Jesus. In chapters 4 to 6, we begin to understand what that lordship of Jesus looks like and, and sounds like and how it works out with one another and what would characterize a mature life, the destination, the calling. I started by talking about learning to play the piano and, and, and not just seeing the notes, but seeing the phraseology, seeing the whole piece. And that we're caught up into the song and the music and the melody of Jesus, into his kingdom, into his family. We're all caught up. And we're not just to see the individual notes or maybe our little part and piece in the arrangement, but to see the grand symphony, the opus that he has made that has a beginning in Jesus Christ and a destiny in a future. And our part is not just to see the dots, but to see the phrases, to take the first step, the next step, the right foot, the left foot, walking in him, knowing what he has accomplished. An exciting, vibrant journey of faith. I hope that encourages you. If you need to believe in Jesus and begin right now, trusting that he is your Savior and Lord, let that be your first act of worship and devotion to his Lordship. The kids are coming in and they're going to serve you because they're part of this one body and we love them, don't we? We're so glad for our children. We are one family called together. And I pray the Spirit of God God would refresh us and anoint us and refuel us as we worship. Uh, Because of time, we're going to just invite the children back in.